Um, you may notice we have some new furniture. I want to explain this, and then I have a request for you. Um, as you know, uh, Bo and Debbie are uh, rearranging their basement because Andrew and Pam are coming back next week to live in the basement. And he said, uh, as they were cleaning out, do you want the stool for church? And I, and I didn't respond. And he said, he said, you could sit in it and preach in it. I said, yeah, I could. And uh, so I walked in this morning and it was sitting on stage. So, so here's what you need to do. Sarah's here, but she's not allowed to. Isn't Sarah? Yeah, she, she's not allowed to tell. So uh, somebody email Bo and Debbie this week and say that uh, Michael used the stool and he had a table and he had a coffee cup and he had an iPad. And I'm not opposed to that kind of, it's just not me. But so tell him that, tell him that everything has changed and you're really, you don't like the stool and you're upset. So if someone do that, or maybe two or three of you explain, he put a table and coffee cup or maybe a bottle of water. Um, wore skinny jeans. <laughs> that, that's the new. We are going to be in uh, Acts chapter 2 and 1 Peter 3 this morning. We have been talking about uh, baptism for the last couple of weeks. I want to continue that or finish that up. Um, I know several of you posted questions that first week. I'm going to answer some of those. There's a couple more I'm going to answer on the website in writing. And then a couple actually going to answer next week when we talk about communion because they sort of relate because there's no way we're going to get it all in today. But even though I keep saying I'm putting things off, I really am going to answer those questions, right? Either you have to come back or you just assume I didn't. How many of you have ever been uh, on a frozen lake or a frozen pond, walked out on it? Have you ever done that? I'm from Texas and I've done that. In Texas, one, one winter when I was like in junior high, it got really cold for like a long time in the, the lake that's uh, pretty close to our house, froze solid. And we got an axe and chopped through it at my grandmother's cabin. And I mean, that axe was like this thick in Texas. So we got ropes and we walked out on the lake and it was really fun. And you could, you know, you could jump up and down on it and um, it was impressive. Uh, but there's... Some parts of that lake that didn't freeze as much as others and you really wouldn't want to put a lot of weight in. You certainly wouldn't want to jump on it. But there are other parts that you probably could have driven a vehicle on. I mean, it was that thick. I've, I think I've read that eight inches, depending upon what kind of ice it is, you can put a vehicle on it or at least something semi-heavy. We didn't try that, of course, but um, you probably could. Theology is sort of that way. Uh, there, are, there are some things that we can jump up and down on and we should jump up and down on. Um, that we should be very adamant about, very dogmatic about. There are certain things that, that we don't compromise on. There are other things that, you know, you, you might walk on it and, and feel secure about it, but, you know, you might not want to jump up and down and, and make a, a scene to someone else who disagrees with you. Then there are some things that, you know, we, we really don't want to put much weight on at all. Last week we talked about uh, some of those things that, that as Christians people disagree on, uh, and it's really not worth jumping up and down on, the, the mode of baptism being being one of those things. Um, this week I want to talk about one of those things that we really should be able to jump up and down on, and that's the relationship between baptism and salvation. The relationship between baptism and salvation. There's an outline in your bulletin. You can follow along um, if you'd like. And in Acts chapter 2, if you'll turn there, we'll get there in, in just a moment. Um, but there is a, a clear teaching in Scripture, that, that we come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ by grace through faith alone. 
Uh, it's not just in, in one or two places. Um, all the authors of, of Scripture, even from the very beginning, even Moses in, in Genesis, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him his righteousness before he had ever done anything. In fact, even after he had done some really lousy things. Because he simply believed God credited to his account righteousness. And that is the testimony of Scripture throughout Paul, as we read last week in Ephesians 2. Over and over again, God initiated, God initiated, God initiated, God does, God does. And there are no commands, there are no imperatives in the first three chapters of Ephesians other than remember what you used to be like before God changed you. It's the only imperative, the only command in the first three chapters. Over and over again, God has done, God has done, God has done. And we read that, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. He also writes in, in Romans 3 and Romans 5, we've been justified by faith. He didn't add anything to that. The Apostle John in, in 1 John 5, 1, all who believe are born again. Peter in, in his epistle says, the outcome of our faith not the outcome of our faith plus anything else. The outcome of our faith is the salvation of your souls. And then as we read at the beginning, even Jesus said, they asked, what do we do? Give us something to do. What do we have to do? And He says, here's what you've got to do. You've got to believe. The, the consistent testimony of Scripture from beginning to end is that we come into a relationship with God through faith. But then we come to these, these few passages, like in Acts 2 and in 1 Peter 3, where it looks like there's something else going on. So in Acts 2, um, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, a lot of weird things happen, and, and the people go, what's going on? And Peter gets up and he preaches a sermon, and he talks about uh, the judgment of God coming upon the world and Him pouring out His Spirit in the last days. And he says, and this is, the, this is the culmination of that prophecy, and it's in the Messiah, Jesus, whom you rejected, whom you crucified. He actually is the one that we're supposed to believe is the Messiah. Well, he's talking to a bunch of Jews. Number one, they already believe in God. Number two, they already believe in a Messiah. They just didn't think Jesus was it. And when Peter explains that through the resurrection he's fulfilled these prophecies and this is what Joel talked about, the coming of the Spirit, and they go, and it, the Scripture says, they're pierced to the heart. In other words, God has gotten their attention and they say, what do we do? And then Peter in, in verse 38 says, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And so it looks like, and there's a, I think the first one, Phil, it looks like this is what's going on. He gives these, these two things they've got to do. They've got to repent and they've got to be baptized and they do both of those and they get forgiveness of their sins. And so it looks like, well, wait a minute, maybe there is something else. Maybe baptism is really a necessity. It's what I've got to do along with this repentance thing to get salvation. Sometimes when we, we, we translate Scripture into a language we lose something. There's a, actually, there's a language in Papua New Guinea where there's not a word for brother. They've got a word for older brother. And they've got a word for younger brother, but they don't have a word for brother. 
So every time the word brother shows up in the Bible, they've got to figure out, is this an older brother or is it a younger brother? And that's fairly easy in a lot of places like Jacob and Esau. Okay, we know who's older, who's younger. Isaac and Ishmael, we know who's younger and who's older, right? Because the text tells us who was born first. But sometimes the text doesn't tell us. For example, James and John, who's older? Do we know? Right, and so in that language, they've got to make a decision on who's older and who's younger. Well, there's some things in English, too, that, that, that they have in Greek that we don't have in English. And here's one of those places, and we don't have any other way to do it other than... Go well, the next slide, Phil. Using a second-person pronoun. You repent, and each of you be baptized for the for forgiveness of your sins. Right? And the first one and the last one are just like English. They actually use a second-person... I know grammar. I don't even like grammar, but sometimes you got to deal with it. That's the way it works. A second-person plural pronoun. But the middle one... We don't have that construction in English. It's actually a third-person command. We don't do third-person commands in English. Every time you command something, there's always an understood you to go with it. That construction doesn't exist in English. So I'm going to put this in Texan for you so that you'll, so that you'll get it. The next one. Here's what really Peter said. Y'all repent, and each person, each individual, must be baptized... For the forgiveness of y'all's sins. You know, you can have two contractions in one word. In Texas, you can do that, right? That's, a, that's possible. And so what really is happening is, and this wouldn't make sense. Each person must be baptized for the forgiveness of y'all's sins, right? So, so if, if we're all going to have forgiveness of sins, Jim's got to be baptized, right? If Pob decides to opt out, then we're all in trouble. Okay, so but we have no other way to really say that other than it makes sense to use a, a second person pronoun. So we want to think about this. Uh, if if we put commas in that middle section and take it out, this really refers to what's going on up there. And repentance for a Jew is simply repentance just means changing your mind. What Peter wants them to do is change their mind about Jesus, put their faith in him and not some future Messiah. So when Peter calls them to repent, he's calling them to faith in Christ, not faith in something that hasn't shown up yet. And this middle section is just something that, that he's asking them to do. You know, after you've repented, what we do as Jews when we've shown that we've changed is we make a public declaration, and that's through baptism. So Peter's not asking them to be baptized in order to have forgiveness of sins. He's just saying this is what we do. We'll talk about this a little more in just a moment. Okay, So that's how we deal with, with Acts 2.38. Uh, Peter's not saying that baptism is a part of salvation. Um, that only comes through repentance. And, and in this context, that means faith in Christ. Let's turn over to, uh, to 1 Peter chapter 3 for a moment. There's one more passage that, that talks about um, baptism and salvation. First Peter chapter three. Um, Peter's talking about uh, the days of Noah, and in it's, it's just a, a very long sentence. But um, 
beginning in verse 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Sometime in the first year, we're going to study First Peter in here together, so we'll get to that part, the part I want to talk about today. <clears throat> During the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So people will read that and go, see, it says right there, baptism now saves you. And often folks will just stop there. But the next part of that verse it explains what he means. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. It's, it's not the physical act of the water that saves you. But an appeal to God for a, a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. And we can, we can set this up as a parallel. If you'll look at that, that next slide. He gives these, these two examples. He talks about Noah and he talks about us. So the ark brought those eight persons safely through the water. Okay, so those, those are the, the four terms he uses in the first part. And he uses those same four terms with a different analogy for us. Baptism, we know it's spiritual baptism, not physical, because he says, not the removal of flesh, dirt from flesh. So spiritual baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's because of what Christ did only that we are saved. It's the only way we come into the presence of the Father. What's interesting is uh, that idea of water. For the days of, of Noah, water was judgment. Water was death for all of those people. And yet, God used that water really to, to buoy people up, those eight persons, Noah and his wife and his kids. So while in, in one sense that water was judgment, it was also their salvation because they chose to be obedient and rest in the ark. And so for us, baptism, spiritual baptism, and then the outward sign of that, our physical baptism, where we, where we show that we have died with Christ and been raised up is the same thing. right? We, we say, I'm identifying with the judgment that Christ took on Himself in His death. Th that event, the cross and the resurrection, is both judgment and it's salvation to us in the same way that water was both judgment and salvation. And we have the great privilege, the great opportunity to partake of that salvation through faith by trusting in the death and resurrection of Christ. Just like it was through the water that saved them, it was through the resurrection of Christ that we are saved. And so part of the problem is, is we react against the idea that that baptism or anything else saves us is we, we tend to sometimes, as we react to things, relegate them to really not that important. Yeah, we do baptism, but it's not really a big deal. And yet you read through Scripture and it's a huge deal. In fact, in the Great Commission, when Jesus gave the disciples that commission of things to do, He only told them four things to do. He told them to go. That's a prerequisite, right? You've you got to go somewhere. He told them to make disciples, and in that context, he's talking about people who 
come to faith in Christ. He told them to teach them. He told them to baptize them. I mean, if there's only four things that he asked them to do and baptism is one of them, then it's, it's highly important. And so, and so we need to maybe ask ourselves some questions. Maybe a question would, would look like this. If I'm saved, have I been baptized? We may think, that's an, that's an odd question. But it's one that we should think about. If, if I'm saved, have I been obedient in following Christ in baptism? Let's change that up a little bit. If I'm saved... Am I willing to love my neighbor? And we might think, well, sure, you should be willing to love your neighbor, right? If, if you're saved, you should be, right? If that's the case, and, and God commands us to love our neighbor, He also commands us to be baptized. So let's turn that around. <clears throat> if I'm saved, is there a good reason not to be baptized? Just like if I'm saved, is there a good reason not to love my neighbor? Well, no, there's not a good reason not to love your neighbor. If I'm saved, is there a good reason that I should go on lying? Maybe, it, maybe before I came to Christ, I really had a bad habit of, of not telling the truth. Kind of, it became just a part of me, the way I was. But now that I'm a believer, and for some reason Christ didn't take that desire away, but shouldn't I strive for that? Shouldn't I be working towards the idea that I am dead to that sin now? And if I say that I'm a believer... Shouldn't I seek to put that to death? We would answer, well, of course, right? But what if someone didn't? What if someone said, well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I don't really <clears throat> buy into that loving your neighbor thing. I don't really love my neighbor. In fact, sometimes I'm mean to my neighbor. How would we respond to that? Well, a couple of ways, I think. One, we might, <clears throat> we might question if they really understood the relationship, right? Do you understand what you've, what you've done when you've put your faith in Christ? I might not doubt they're a Christian, but that may require me to, to come alongside them and, and do some teaching, some explanation. But ultimately, it would require me to call them to repentance, right? We, we might put a technical term on that and call that church discipline, right? If, if you say you're a Christian, but you still go online or being mean to your neighbor or cheating on your wife, Right? As, as a body of Christ, we come alongside that person and we teach and we instruct, but we ultimately call them to repentance. And if they refuse to repent, what does the Bible say? It says we treat them like Gentiles and tax collectors, right? Well, what does that mean? Well, if, if, if you're a Gentile, that means you don't know the covenant-keeping God in the context of what Jesus was talking about, right? A Gentile to a Jew was someone that that doesn't know the covenant-keeping God. Right, well, after Christ, we learn that, oh, our mission is to go to those people, right? So if we treat them like a Gentile, what, they, what that means is, oh, that person needs the gospel. They may say they're a believer, but by their refusal to repent and follow after Christ, they obviously need the gospel. And so our call to them is no longer fellowship as a brother, but... We assume, even though they say so, that they're not a believer and therefore they need the gospel. 
or you treat them like a tax collector. What's a tax collector? Well, it's it's usually was a Jew who had sort of turned his back on his home country and was working for the enemy. And so someone who refuses to repent, that's exactly what they're doing. I say that I'm a believer, but I've, I've turned my back on what the church is to be about, loving my neighbor. I refuse to do that. And so I would treat them like one who had done that. What do they need? They need the gospel. They need Christ. They either are missing something on what they think a, a believer is, or they really have never placed their faith in Christ in His death and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins. And baptism is one of those things like loving your neighbor and telling the truth and being faithful to your spouse. Is there a good reason why we wouldn't baptize someone if they claim to be a believer? For an adult, I would say no. There's not a good reason. Other than they... Maybe you're just a brand new believer and they need to learn some things. See, early on, baptism always immediately followed conversion because what they were, who they were converting were people who were what the Bible calls God-fears, either, either already um, Gentiles who um, had converted to Judaism or Jews who just needed to know that Christ was the Messiah. And so it was just a simple matter of fact. They already knew the Scriptures. And so it was just a simple, they didn't need to be taught anything. You've believed, now we're going to baptize you. But as, as time wore on and they, they got into further and further Gentile lands, they began to do what was called catechisms with people. You come to faith and we're going to, we're going to let you go through a period of time where we're going to teach you the Scriptures. We're going to teach you who God is, the basics of faith. And then when we feel like you understand that, then we're going to bring you for baptism. We live in a, a culture very much like the Roman world, a lot of folks are clueless, know nothing about this book or who God is or what He's done. And while they may very easily understand, because a child can understand the gospel, I'm a sinner, <laughs> I'm in trouble because God has a standard. Jesus Christ took the punishment that I deserve on the cross and I'm placing my trust in Him for the forgiveness of sins. That's an, that's an easy message that children can get. But there's a lot of things that we said that go along with baptism. Um, and so, for a child, uh, one of the questions that was asked, well, what about, what about my kid? What do they need to be able to understand before we baptize them? Um, a couple of things. I think they need to understand the truths of salvation. Can they articulate out loud what it is that's happened to them? Do they know the gospel? Sin, Jesus, faith, right? Can they articulate those things? to someone. Um, two, baptism is a public declaration of faith. So can they publicly declare what they've done? That may be someone asking them a question. Do you confess that before Christ you were a sinner? Right? It may just be a yes or no, but can they stand up and publicly say that? Uh, if not, then I would say, let's wait. There's no rush because baptism obviously doesn't save them uh, why I rush through it? And then they need to understand that they are making a public declaration to the church that I am choosing to live a life where I am dead to sin and alive to righteousness. And that's, and that's an issue that happens by faith. And I would say if a child can do those three things, can explain their salvation, can, 
can publicly profess that either on their own through a testimony or by answering questions, um, and understands the significance of baptism, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, then I would say they're ready to be baptized. Same thing for, for an adult. Because ultimately what baptism is and what it should be, not only for the person being baptized, but for us as a community. Um, in the Old Testament, when God did something miraculous, He would have the people set up a standing stone. Sometimes they'd write words on it. Sometimes they'd mark on it. Um, a physical reminder of what God did. And they'd say, why are we doing that? Well, so when your kids are old enough, they go, hey, Dad, what is that? You can go back and say, let me tell you what God did. Let me tell you the story. And baptism for us should be like that. It should be a standing stone for us. So that when we're older, later in life, we, we come to a point where maybe doubt sets in. Discouragement. We begin to wonder, is God really real? Is He really there? It's something for us to look back on and we say, you know, at one time in my life, I trusted that God was who He said He was and that Christ did what He said He did. And I believed that. And there was a whole bunch of people who gathered around me who affirmed that in me. And I walked by faith. And so it's a standing stone for us to look back on. And so that's another reason why, especially for, for young kids, we want them to understand what it is that they're doing so that it's something they can look back on. And go, there was a time that it wasn't just my mom and dad's faith. It was mine, and I, and I stood before the church, and I publicly professed that this is what God has done for me. The last thing, baptism is, is also, a, as we said, it's a public declaration that I'm choosing to, to die to sin and walk in life. And we do that with the church because what I'm saying is, I am now a part of the body of Christ, and I submit myself to you for inspection, correction, reproof, that when I mess up, you have my permission, you have the responsibility to come along and correct me, right? Because if, if, if I cut my arm, the arm can't tell me, no, I don't want a Band-Aid, Right? As in control of the body, I have the right to put a bandit on my arm if I cut it. If you publicly say, I'm now a part of the church through baptism, you really don't have the right to say to someone, you can't come and offer input into my life. And if you're not ready to do that or not willing to do that, then I would say there's no reason to be baptized and we need to, to talk through those issues because that is part of what it means to be a part of the church. I am part of you. You're part of me. I have the privilege and the responsibility to speak into your life. You have the privilege and the responsibility to speak into my life and each other's lives. We are a body. We are a family. And we should act like that. And so again, if there are some of you out there who have not been baptized, I would love to talk to you. We would love to do that before it gets cold. Though remember we read a couple weeks ago about Cold water is preferred over warm water, right? In the first century, they, that writing. Would you remember that? We talked about that. He said, running water. If you don't have running water, make sure it's cold. But if it's not cold, you can use warm. If you can't find anything, you can pour it on their head, right? Um, we've got lots of cold running water around here. And so we'd love to, um, to let you experience that.
if you've not been baptized, I'd love for you to come, come talk to me about that. Um, next week, we're going we're gonna to transition a little bit to communion. But we're also going to talk about the role of, of baptism and church membership and baptism and taking of communion. Those kind of go together, so we'll save that for next week. Uh, there were two other questions that were asked that I'm going to write about on the website. One is, what did Jesus' baptism mean? Why was he baptized? Uh, and were the disciples baptized? And I think I've answered all the questions, but if not, you can uh, send me an email and, and we'll deal with that. Uh, before we pray and are dismissed to go to, uh, to classes, just a couple of reminders. Miss Jean is still in the hospital. I'll continue to pray for her. She's got some more tests coming up. Uh, Margaret's mom in Arkansas had a stroke uh, for either Friday night or Saturday morning early, and they're just trying to decide steps to take. I think it was a, a pretty serious stroke, and they're debating, do we move her here? Do we need to go there? There's just a lot of, they were just needing wisdom on that. Um, continue to pray uh, for John as they continue to seek appointments and, and work on, on his eyesight as well. Anything else before we pray and are dismissed? Oh, next week we are collecting for DSS uh, new underwear, socks, wipes, and diapers. There is, uh, you can put them on the table out here, but uh, bring those by next week and we'll make sure those all get delivered. I think that's it. Oh, uh, Michael, if, if, uh, no, if you haven't looked at the uh, email that Michael sent out about the family, helping family, and you did want to participate uh, in this ministry, we're about to go ahead and kick off some of the other facets of it. Um, so we need to have a, a firm list of who's Look at that list and then give Tim a, a call. That would be great. Anything else? Just a reminder, after this, we have an adult class uh, next door, elementary and preschool, and the youth will meet in here, so you adults have to vacate fairly quickly. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for uh, the grace that you give us, the love that you provide for us uh, through your Son our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would help us as we go into our week um, to be reminded of the certainty of what you have done for us, that we might be free to love others in this community for your glory. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. And you are dismissed.